Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to episode nine of the top 40 career series. Cody, I don't remember doing nine episodes on this. That is incredible. Nine times. Uh, Top 40 careers. We have made our way to the top 10. Last time we talked about number 15, Dirk Nowitzki. Oscar Robertson at 14 was two episodes ago. 13, Carl Malone. 12, Kobe Bryant. And then in the Magic Bird, I just, I, I change my mind every day on Magic and Bird. Magic 11, Bird at the back end of the top 10 this time. And today we get into the top 10. And no one is going to have strong feelings about this at all, right? This is just smooth sailing. Everyone agrees that these are the nine best careers in NBA history. Yeah, 100%. There's, from some of my research, I've realized that these players have no strong supporters or strong naysayers at all. So this should be a smooth sailing episode. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of big men to discuss. There's a lot of big men left on this list. And in fact, the next... Oh, I don't know. Five or six guys in order on this list are are big men um, going back all the way to 1960 with Wilt Chamberlain. When he came into the league, he played from 1960 to 1973. And then guys that retired a couple years ago, like Kevin Garnett, who played about 112 seasons or something. Kevin, Kevin Garnett drafted out of high school in 1995 and ended his career in like 2016. Just unbelievable longevity from these guys because as I realized when I did the original series, that if you're looking at career value and you're thinking about extending your strengths on the court based on your skills, Cody, height ages really, really well. In terms of just like, what do you think has to do with that? Because when you say height age as well, the first thing that comes to mind is you're able to maybe keep your defensive value more. Because when I think of Kevin Garnett, like in the late stages of his career, I still think he was a pretty solid defensive player. So do you think that's maybe the main thing that that's keeping these big men good later into their career? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you think about Garnett and Duncan late in their career, they were playing because of their defense. They were on good defenses at times, great defenses at times. Um, They were looking good still in all the defensive metrics we have. Now, you can't play 40 minutes a game maybe when you're 35 anymore, but 30, 35 minutes a game going out there as one of the better defensive big men in the league. I think the reason why the height thing ages is because you're wise when you're old, you have a lot of experience. And as we've seen, especially even in modern basketball, I think this was true 20 years ago, but it's especially true today. It's hard to bring young, big, athletic, defensive centers and and bigs in general into the game when they're, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22, and get them to be really good defenders. And so when you take these all-time level defenders, and for the most part, this string of big men that we're going to talk about, a lot of them reach this all-time level defensively. As they get older, coming down from those heights, you're still a better defensive piece on a key team than like most guys in the league. And as we've talked about in this series, that's just going to help you get sub all-star seasons, be a top 40 or top 50 player. That's a really important starter on a championship level team. 
all-star seasons, your offense still has a little juice and your defense is still like all defense or even all NBA seasons when you come off your prime. And in the case of these guys, these guys were all so good. It helped them get there early. Let's let's us a perfect transition to talk about uh, the great rookie seasons, which we've mentioned over the last couple episodes. And for me, Wilt Chamberlain, just like Larry Bird last time, Wilt Chamberlain in the running for greatest rookie season of all time, along with Tim Duncan, two different eras, two different guys, but both came into the league a little bit older, just like Bird. And right out of the gate, Cody, I think we're talking about MVP level players. MVP level, is it? Okay. MVP, mo- minimum viable product. <laughs> <laughs> so my thought with that is like there's this interesting thing with big man where we talk so much about how positional awareness is so important to defense and especially when you're a big body just like knowing where to go at the right time seems to be more important than being like look at how quickly I can touch 12 and a half feet but if you can combine those things obviously that's going to help you peak so do you think do you think that's something that helped these guys do they come in with a little bit more positional awareness or was there an aspect of just being like so much more athletic than everyone else in the league, especially relating to one of these two players. Boy, I I don't know with them specifically if that comes to mind. I mean, maybe Duncan, to a certain degree, had a a good idea of where to put his body and things like that. Wilt, uh, he he played at Kansas. One of the reasons we're going to talk about Wilt a little more today is I was able to get a ton more Wilt Chamberlain footage this summer as part of a documentary that's coming out. I'm really excited about that. I think I think it's I think it's going to come out next year. Um, and so one of the things I was able to do was watch all these early Wilt games. There's not tons. It's not like hundreds and hundreds of games, but you get enough footage and you start to see you're like, oh, my God, I've seen like 2000 Wilt Chamberlain post up possessions. I have a good feel for this. Um, there's the 1957 title game at Kansas. And I want to talk about that briefly when we get to offense. But on the defensive side, you could see he was a sophomore then. Uh, you didn't play as a freshman back then. He was a sophomore. And you could see this just incredible rim protection that sometimes you'll see with college, you know Patrick Ewing as a college freshman or someone like that or Anthony Davis as a college freshman. And it was this type of crushing effect when guards tried to come down the paint or other big men who were 6'8 and not 7'1 with 7'8 wingspans were coming at him. Um, and so he had that shot blocking right away. He had that paint presence right away. He played in a packed paint era. And I think in 1960, when he came into the league, you know, Cody, if Bill Russell didn't exist, you might be talking about the best defensive player in the league in 1960. With Duncan, I think it's similar in the sense that he went to Wake Forest for four years. Wilt played in 1957 in Kansas and then went and played with the Harlem Globetrotters and then finally came to the NBA in 1959-1960 season. So both of these guys were a couple years older. Duncan was also one of the best defensive players in the league, in my assessment, when he came into the league. He got to play with Greg Popovich, great coach, great defensive-minded coach. He got to play next to David Robinson, Twin Towers. It was kind of unfair at times, and those guys were just suffocating. And so it goes back to the other side of the coin that started this conversation about length aging. When you come in and you have that awareness and you have that shot blocking and you have that paint presence, back in those days, you just automatically were like, 
an all unless you were terrible on offense, you were like automatically an all-star level player. And spoiler alert, neither of these guys were terrible on offense. That's why we're talking about the top 10 players of all time in terms of career value. Even Wilt Chamberlain, I guess I don't know how much you want to get into the offense at this point, but offensively, because we know that he comes in really strong defensively. I've seen, you know, like you said, there's not great footage out there, full games of early Wilt, but I've definitely seen the like grainy slow motion of him rising up and there's like a camera flashing and you see his hand like sort of near the top of the backboard. And you're like, yeah, is this guy yeah. actually blocking a shot 13 feet in the air? But yeah, catching the ball out of the air. Yeah. 13 feet. Yeah. It's unbelievable from that perspective. You're like, this is probably the most athletic play I've ever seen. But what do you think about his offense when he came into the league? How polished do you think he looked at that point? Well, so what's really cool, I, I alluded to the uh, 1957 championship game. Uh, this is a, I mean, I could spend half an hour talking about this game alone. This is a fascinating game. And and basically what happens is North Carolina plays this zone where they're like, we're going to let Kansas shoot however they want to shoot. And we're just going to sag back into the paint in zone coverage where we constantly have like two guys off the ball on Wilt to deny the entry pass. And so you got a ton of off-ball value in that game for Wilt. It, think of like the way we talk about Steph Curry running around and things like that. This was like a big man version of that where they just were like, we need to have two or three people on Wilt when he doesn't have the ball. So he can't catch the ball in the post because he's too big and too dominant in the post. And that sagging off opens up outside shots for teammates. As we've discussed in this series, one of the challenges with being a post player who can be an all-time level offensive threat is how do you play out of the post? How do you how do you generate the same level of pressure and value and playmaking out of the post compared to when you're on the perimeter as a guard? You can drive into open space, you can shoot yourself, you can kick. Post players back then, they didn't have a three-point line to, to play out to. So with someone like Akeem Olajuwon, we see inside-out offense. With Shaq, we could see inside-out offense kicking it out to the three-point line. They didn't have that back then. So even in this game in 1957, with all this off-ball value in this game, you are still asking the teammates of Wilt, in this case the the Kansas teammates. He had had maybe one teammate who had a cup of coffee uh, in the NBA. It wasn't an NBA-heavy roster. you are still asking those guys to hit like 21-foot open long two-pointers, which aren't that valuable. And so right out of the gate, I would say his off-ball presence when he was younger in the NBA, especially as an offensive rebounder, but any little flash or duck in in the post or any deep position, if you let him get that catch, he was so big, it was very, very difficult to stop him. And I think that's a similarity with someone like Shaq, where you've got this off-ball value right out of the gate combined with the defensive stuff, and it's like big scoring, big defense, and at least in the 1957 championship game, he was getting a ton of attention from extra defenders. When you get to the NBA, that changes a little bit. We can talk about that more in a second if you want, but that's kind of the two-way value you're talking about right away I think that's an MVP level player that's really interesting I love I love the comparison to Steph Curry because he has that sort of we, we've talked about that game before in the the college game where uh, the team double teams him in the corner the whole time and he ultimately like doesn't score 
but Davidson still wins by like 20, like thir- 30 points yeah, or something. It yeah. was a ridiculous kind of game. So it's really cool that there's like that reflection. But I'm also glad you brought up the three point line because we we discussed, I think, when, when we were talking to Oscar and West, it's like, how valuable can you actually be without the three point line? And so do you think not having I guess that's an interesting push pull, because on one hand, not having the three point line allows teams to maybe double up more on Wilt because they're not afraid of giving up the three point line. But also, if there was the three-point line, Wilt would be able to maybe create more of a dent and help people on the three-point line. So do you think not having a three-point line actually hurt or helped Wilt's offensive value? The offensive value, it... I don't know. It, I, my, my hunch is it's easier as a post player to have better spacing and then have that inside-out option. So in instead of just having the layup be a high-value spot that you can access, either yourself or by hitting a cutter, uh, you also have the three-point shot that you can access. And I think we saw this quite effectively with Hakeem Olajuwon's Rockets playing inside-out. And as I said, Shaq's, Shaq's teams as well, both in Orlando and in Los Angeles. But we have to keep in mind that when we talk about Wilt's offenses and Wilt's teams as many listeners know there's a lot of listeners that maybe don't know but many listeners know I've done a lot of work on historical team offenses and efficiencies and we've talked about this in prior episodes where guys like Jerry West look like better scorers I mean they look like better scorers to me on film but just statistically they actually look like better scorers than Wilt when you look at stuff like playoff numbers adjusting for I mean efficiency things like that Wilt was an efficient scorer and he was a big scorer. But of course, his his scoring back then was in a league where pace was really high. And you had other guys in the postseason. We talked about Elgin Baylor at 39 points a game. We talked about West at 40 points a game. Wilt's career high in the playoffs is like 37 points a game. So you had a high volume score playing in a game that was way more packed in the paint. And you didn't have the same kind of automatic double teams. You didn't have like, we're going to double immediately from the top and you could kick it out to an open shooter. You didn't have that when you watch the tape. There's there's more straight up coverage, uh, man-to-man coverage, I should say, depending on the team he's playing. And Wilt loved, he loved this fadeaway on the left block. He was very left block dominant. It kind of jumps out when you watch a ton of games over and over again, you're like, wow, he likes to go to the left block and just set up shop there. And so going back to the off ball thing, I like his off ball value when he's younger because he's a little bit more active in terms of flashing across the lane or trying to get a deep seal or when a shot goes up, being able to swim and work for an offensive rebound because he was a devastating offensive rebounder. If he caught it down there, it's like it's going back up for one of those big dunks or you have to foul him. Uh, much like Shaq in that sense. But he didn't move quite as much as I want him to move. Like when I say in Greatest Peaks, I talk about how Shaq is like an evolutionary version of Wilt. Shaq is constantly pressuring you by flashing across the lane on different sides. Of course, he had that spin move off the ball that was so famous where he feels you overplaying to take away like low block position, spins off the other shoulder and catches a lob. They didn't, they didn't really have that. You know, that wasn't a thing in the 1960s. You didn't have spins over the middle for these huge, uh, huge lobs that you would see from Shaq. So in that sense, early Wilt, I like the off-ball value. Uh, it's actually something I'm a little bit higher on 
than I was five years ago, getting to go through the film and be like, hmm, all this, all this kind of off-ball dynamic that I've been describing, I think that gives him a little bit more offensive value than I credited him in those early years five years ago. But it's still not, it's still not a guy constantly pressuring the defense off the ball. It's more of a guy who, like, most of the time he goes to the left block. If he can catch it on the left block, he might, he might flash his fade away. Sometimes he tries to get the drop step for that little finger roll. That's Cody's favorite move, by the way, when Wilt does that that huge finger roll where it's almost like a ballerina. Like he's doing a balletic move, like his neck goes in the other direction. If you haven't seen it, you can uh, check out YouTube. He's got like a seven foot eight wingspan or something. Um, but you know that that was it. That was that was largely his game in the early days. And it wasn't that he was an unwilling passer. It's just he looked to score more when he got the ball. He looked to score more right away. And there just weren't a lot of, like, especially 1962, the season where he scores 50 points a game. You just didn't see the same level of uh, movement and spacing and cutting from his teammates that you would see with coaches in subsequent years. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I got my paintbrush right now, Ben, because I, I got some color I want to add to some of the things you said. You you bring up that finger roll. This is this is one of those things that I just saw throughout his entire career. And to really try and describe it, it's like a it's like a no look reverse finger roll sort of situation. Like he catches the ball maybe like five feet away from the rim, and then he like jumps up and brings his hand backwards as he's kind of spinning towards the rim and tries to lay it's it's a very strange looking shot and it frustrated me, uh, especially in the early seventies. I feel like I saw him do it quite a bit and it, that frustrated me frustrated me a good amount. Speaking about his efficiency too, just to just to explain how efficient this man was, uh, according to your database here. He doesn't have a single season that is of negative efficiency in the regular season. His lowest regular season efficiency is like a plus 1.6. And <laughs> he hits a ceiling at a plus 19.1 in his final season in the NBA. So 19 percentage points uh, higher than, than league average in efficiency. And so those are a couple things I wanted to explain a little bit more. But um what I wanted to ask about was this sort of like early post-up sorts of possessions because you bring up his passing and I know when you go back to your profile, you kind of talked about passing mode wilt and you talked about scoring mode wilt and you talk about this fight away. We have this this finger roll that he went to um, in, in those early seasons. Did you think that his like scoring mode mentality had him missing open passes like where they're passing alleys and angles that were there that he was kind of ignoring uh to kind of focus on his scoring or were those just not there for him at the time? Uh, no, I've seen him. I've seen him miss some passes. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, everyone misses passes, but uh, I think the nature, another thing with Wilt that, that plugs into this is he didn't have a good handle. So you can't turn and face, you can't drive, um, you know, 
can't put it on the floor easily without using up a lot of mental calories. So he's he's often going to like one rote dribble move to set something up like the fadeaway. Or if he dribbles once or twice, that the head is going down and he's and he's focusing on the footwork. And so you're not going to see passes there. Later in his career, when his style changed and Wilt's career is sort of incredible because he goes through these multiple phases of style change more that are probably more extreme than any other player in NBA history, certainly any other star in NBA history. When you see that, his passes aren't... Um, they aren't coming off those actions. They aren't. It's not like dribble, dribble. Oh, now I have a little flip over my shoulder like Arvita Sabonis. It's more like he's catching and waiting and looking for cutters, uh, little handoffs, cutter passes, and then a behind-the-back pass that he loved. You'll see that behind-the-back pass on highlights. One of the things that cracks me up is when you actually watch games, you can see him miss the behind-the-back passes. So he, he tried this, and again, there's nothing wrong with missing it, but it's like if you only watch the highlights, you're like, oh my god, he's what's going on? All of a sudden, he's a savant throwing like behind-the-back no-look passes to cutters in the post, and it's like he actually tried that a lot and threw it off some legs. It, did, it didn't always work. Uh, I actually liked that he tried it a lot. But I think to answer your question more directly, the whole idea as we've talked about players in this series from, you know, Steve Nash to James Harden, um, Isaiah Thomas, even we talked about it with Julius Irving. You, you want to be able to pressure the defense in a way that accesses the best shot for your team, whether that shot comes from you as the scorer or a teammate, a teammate who's open for three, a teammate who's open under the basket because of a double team, or a teammate that cuts into a great position. And you want to be able to access that on a whim. And that's what I mean by score mode, pass mode. It's a dichotomy to think about how the best offensive players are. Let's let's think of someone like Michael Jordan, because I think it's easy to put in your mind's eye. Jordan catches the ball, takes two hard dribbles left, gets into the paint, pulls up for a little nine footer or something. And so often a second defender comes to block his shot. And because he's Michael Jordan and he can hang in the air and think about how his Wi-Fi is up there and, you know, ask for uh, a tomato juice or so he's just up there. He will then audible in the air and pass it around that doubling defender to Horace Grant underneath the basket for a layup. Cody, that's happening dynamically. This pick picking the best option is happening in real time at the same time. And the best players do that. When Nash comes off the pick the pick and roll, he's there to shoot. And if you commit to the shot, he's transitioning from the dribble on his right hand to a bounce pass to Amari Stoudemire for a dunk. What was happening with Wilt is not that Wilt didn't have nice passes. It's not that he didn't set his teammates up. And I think going back to college, he looks like a very willing passer. It's not that he wasn't a willing passer. It's that the style of play and his style of attack and his dribble and his skill set with the fadeaway. And the, basically, he's going, I have the ball. I'm going to go and turn to score. And when he does that and help comes, he's rarely creating offense. And the flip side is when he has the ball, especially as his career progresses, to create offense, he's not looking to score. He just holds the ball and he's not pressuring the defense and he's looking for a cutter or looking for a kick out. And it was harder for him to find that balance as someone who was such a great scorer early in his career and as someone who was such a big passer leading the NBA in total assists in 1968. 
later in his career, and that's the dichotomy. Does 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 that? Hopefully, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I I, I have a couple more questions just because Will. I find Will to be such a fascinating person, and Ben, I'm gonna be honest with you. If you like try and deep dive certain websites to try and find some like really intense dialogue about Wilt Chamberlain. Good luck. Like those, those spaces don't really exist to any great degree. So unfortunately I didn't, I didn't get some answers, but yeah, the, the picture you're painting with him kind of waiting in the post is like the famous, he's standing there and he's palming the ball. He's kind of waving it all over. Like that's how he liked to do it. But you, you, you highlight a play, I think in your profile where like he catches it maybe 15 feet away from the rim and there's no one really directly in front of him. And it's like, if this were somebody like maybe Shaq, that would be like a one-step power dribble dunk. But Will kind of sees that opening, doesn't really trust his dribble, and kind of turns into like maybe looking for a handoff then. So it's not like he passes out of it, he doesn't drive and create a dent, but he's still like passing. So maybe it looks like, I don't know, oh, this guy's not looking for his shot, however you want to interpret that. But what I find interesting is with his assists, his, like you said, his assists skyrocket in the late 60s. But you know what doesn't skyrocket, Ben? According to your database, his box creation estimates don't skyrocket. And actually, his box creation estimates drop in the late 60s. So what do you think is going on here? Is he like not creating more dense to get these assists? Is it because his overall offensive load is dropping throughout the 60s? Why, why are you not seeing a, a, a comparable rise in his box creation estimates along with his assists? It's a different style. He's scoring way less. So there's less pressure from scoring. Again, you're not throwing it into a keem, feeling a double team and kicking it out to a three-point shooter and directly creating an open shot that way. When he's in, say, Philadelphia in the mid-60s, you have him at the mid-post more, you have him in the high-post more, and Philadelphia had way more offensive talent. They had a bunch of all-star level offensive players. And so you're, you're using Wilt as the hub literally the pivot of the offense to wait for cutters to come open. It's more like the Celtics use Bill Russell, both of them good passers for their era, especially as big men. And it's the same thing. You can, you can hit these passes and make good decisions and, and have handoffs that work for the kinds of offensive sets that they ran back then. But it's a fundamentally different thing than throwing it into Kareem him feeling a double and then hitting the cutter off that double as he comes through for a layup. Not to say Wilt never made that pass because he could make that pass. He did make that pass. But in terms of the big overarching numbers you're talking about, that's essentially what you're seeing. And I think it's actually a reason why I'm a little higher after getting the earlier film, not just on some of his off-ball stuff, but a season like 1964, where Wilt did not win MVP. Wilt won MVP as a rookie in 1960. Uh, I, you know, Bird did not win MVP as a rookie. Duncan did not win MVP as a rookie. They finished extremely high in MVP voting, but Wilt actually won MVP. He didn't win another MVP until 1966. And 66, 67, 68, he wins his other three MVPs. 1967 is often considered a sacred season. Philadelphia started the year like 41 and three or, or something extremely impressive um, in that ballpark. And they finished the year by setting the wins record. They finished the year with what we estimate to be the best offense up until that point in time. You know, just a, just a monster championship season. And, and Wilt was scoring less, passing more, playing defense. It, it was a tour de force kind of year. But 1964, Cody, after getting to see a lot more of it, 
and more of the games. Uh, and again, a lot more of it doesn't mean like 25 full games. Um, but getting to see it more, it's like his scoring and his athleticism and his passing may have been at their best point as a combination in 1964. And I think 1964, he has his best postseason numbers. Everyone knows about the 1962 season where he averages 50 points a game. His his postseason scoring comes down. Um, some of that is having to play the Celtics and Russell, where he, he scored under 40 a game during the regular season. But it's a pattern throughout his entire career. Let's read his postseason scoring volume, just so people have some perspective. This is adjusted for uh, opponent environment. 25 points per 75 possessions in 1960. That's what he scored in the playoffs. 26 in 1961, 24 in 1962, 21 in 1965 in Philadelphia, 21 in 1966, and then he uh, scores less for the rest of his career. 1964, however, he's 29 points per 75 in the post in the postseason at plus 8% efficiency, and I think watching the film he still has a ton of athleticism um, and kind of Alex Hannum is his coach and trying to get him to pass more and he is passing more and the offense has a little bit more movement and the play sets are a little bit more diverse. And to me, it now just has a really strong argument as Wilt's, Wilt's peak season. And when we're talking about Wilt's peak seasons, we are talking about something that is, you know, in the all time level territory of seasons, I think. So what you're saying is like, even though there are some criticisms of the offense, like we just outlined for last few minutes or whatever else, that combined with his probably all-time level defensive impact, overall, he's still an all-time level player at his peak. I mean, we talked about how uncertainty in the 1960s can give us wider ranges with Jerry West and Oscar Robertson, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that applies to Wilt to some degree. However, unlike Oscar and Wilt... I mean, unlike Oscar and West, we don't really have a lot of lineup data when Wilt is in and out of the lineup. Uh, one thing I realized is people are like, boy, it would be great if we had plus minus data from this era. We kind of have the plus minus data for Wilt. He never comes out of the game. <laughs> There's no off sample. So our, our ability to actually look at these periods where he's injured, like when he misses time with the Lakers, uh, with the knee injury, or when he's traded in 1965 uh, back to Philadelphia, those are really important signals for us to look at. And they don't look that great for Wilt. I talk about this in Greatest Peaks Episode 1, where he's traded for like 30 cents on the dollar, and Philadelphia goes from like a 40-win team to a 48-win team. That's not, a, that's not bad for me, per se. But if we were to look at the 60s and say like, is it possible that there's some high-end tail range for Wilt, like Jerry West has... I would say it's less likely than what we talked about with Jerry West. And what that and one of the huge reasons for that is if you're going to give Wilt one of those ranges and some people do this and they're like, "Well, I think 1967 Wilt or 1964 Wilt or even 1962 Wilt is the best player of all time." The signals we see both in terms of these other instances in his career where he's in and out of the lineup or other players miss time and the general strength of those teams make that incredibly unlikely to me, like almost improbable, because how could you have a player who's making your team like seven or eight points better per game, but 
you have like a 500 team? Or how do you explain some of the bumps that happen in like 1963 where San Francisco is just not that good, but Wilt averages 45 points a game. It doesn't entirely add up. So even though I think there's room for his peak to have a high end that is on the very, very, very short list of all-time greatest peaks, I have a harder time extending that out to like, well, what if Wilt really was significantly better than every player of the 1960s? It's like the evidence for that is a little harder for me to see being plausible. With some of those numbers with him being traded and and joining new teams and stuff, are you able to differentiate between the offensive and defensive impacts? Like, is it that there's not much of a change on offense, but we're seeing these huge indicators that he's like God tier level defensive player in those situations? No, it's it, we can estimate. We can estimate because we truly don't know what the pace change is in the first half of the season to the second half of the season. But again, for instance, 1965 San Francisco. Now, a lot of people brush this under the rug because Wilt had a health issue before the season. Uh, there was It was some uncertainty about whether he was going to retire. There was discussion throughout this dude's entire career about like every year is he going to retire. Um, it, it started pretty early in his career. But in 1965, he had he had an issue. I think it sidetracked him for like a couple months before the season started. The season started up. He came back in the season, and he didn't play his best basketball. There could have been defensive disengagement. You know, there was criticisms at the time that in the regular season, he kind of lollygagged defensively. He played all these minutes, but maybe sometimes in the regular season, he's running from elbow to elbow. That's all he's doing. It's not the same type of intensive movements that we see from guys today. We know that. But for instance, 1965 San Francisco, he's got this big scoring number again. And the team's offense that year was really, really bad. It was like minus six or minus seven on the entire year relative to the league. That's that's historically, Cody, that's in the second percentile <laughs> in NBA history. So, you know, we can assume they got worse after Wilt left, the overall team data says they got a little bit worse, but it's not the kind of thing where like the the argument to me doesn't hold water that say 1962 Wilt, the team was very competitive with him. They took the Celtics to seven games in a very famous series. If he wasn't on the team, they would be absolutely terrible. Uh, I, I, I don't see that kind of evidence. And, and just to put some numbers on it, 1965 in San Francisco, he did still end up averaging 39 points per game on plus 2% efficiency. And the offense was just that bad. So I have, I have a hard time seeing him on a per possession basis as an offensive juggernaut that's in the same category as the guys we talked about uh, before in this series. And certainly the guys we've talked about as the best offensive players of the 60s. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Adidas. 
So we've talked a lot about the the regular season right now, and you you referenced maybe that battling Russell contributed to some of the his his I guess drop off in the playoffs because yeah that sixty two season that's maybe like the most significant volume drop off I've seen of any superstar from the regular season to the postseason. Do you attribute most of that to facing Russell for that many games, or do you think there was like an actual change in the way that Wilt played or was used from the playoffs and the regular season? I, I I feel like right now, if I had to place a bet on what actually is going on, it's like a 50-50 wager to me. I, I think a little bit, you know, one side of the coin is Russell. We know the Celtics and Russell slowed them down. And then the other side is like, they, they don't only play Boston in that postseason, and they have other postseasons where they don't play Boston. And there's a consistent um, sort of drop in his scoring. And I think that's probably just because of team intensity and the opponent focus and and things of that nature. So you still have good scoring in Wilt's early volume scoring years in the playoffs, but it's always coming down from where things are in the regular season. On the flip side, as I said in his piece, I, I think he's pretty historically underrated as a defender. And one thing that pops when you get more film is just like, when you're near the basket and you try to score on him, it's really hard. He doesn't have the horizontal game. He doesn't have the reflexes. We mentioned Kevin Garnett. He doesn't have that antenna in his brain. Sometimes he's a touch slow on a rotation. But when he's there and he has you sized up, like, good luck. It's probably going to get swatted into the second row. And I think a little nugget that I found interesting in the in your profile is that there's a... There's a comfy little sentence in there that i found really interesting where a comfy one a comfy comfy one one. yeah i read it and i'm like oh this is i like this little take this is interesting that you posit that there's a possibility that maybe he was better defensively as a laker when he 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 bulks up a little bit more maybe his offensive load drops significantly this is when he's scoring you know like like tyson chandler kinds of numbers do you do you think that's the case? Do you think he was a better defensive player later in his career versus his maybe Philadelphia Warriors days? Well, I'll go with a possibility. Okay. I, I think if I had to place my bet, I think uh, when he's with the Warriors in 67 and 68, it's, it's the best defense we see from him. When he's with the Lakers... He's focusing more on defense. He like I don't think people understand how little he scored with the Lakers. It's startling. In 1973, he scored nine points per 75 possessions. Startling. With the Lakers. In 1969, uh, sorry, that's in the playoffs. Nine points per 75. In 1969 in the playoffs, he scored 11 points per 75. That's in the 15th percentile historically. Those are Dennis Rodman numbers. So he's he's focusing on passing, on offensive rebounding. He still has the same kind of game, even though he's not quite as fluid athletically. So in those games, like 1970 in the finals against the Knicks, Willis Reed gets hurt. They're like, can we throw it to Wilt more in the post and get more post offense from him? And it's nice that you had that extra gear, but he didn't play like that as much. And so especially in 1972 and 1973, you have Bill Sharman, you have this incredible team. He focuses on defense. And Cody, the thing I love, he actually looks a little bit more nimble defensively because maybe he has more energy. And then his hands, he just is, it's more like the Carl Malone thing. He's got the vertical with the shot blocking and he's got really active hands down low, swiping at the ball. Uh, and so you just, you just get a guy who is like, Tyson Chandler on steroids or something. It's it's a really cool, different style of player, especially from 10 years earlier when he was setting scoring records in the regular season. Since we're talking about the breadth of his career, one thing I'll mention that really stood out to me watching all this film on him this summer, 
he gains a ton of weight throughout his career. And I think this has been kind of romanticized by people because he's such an incredible physical specimen when we talk about hard athleticism, classic traditional athleticism. But there's these, there are these anecdotes like Wilt was the fastest player in the league in a straight line. And you can see, especially when he's younger, moments on film where he just bursts and it's like LeBron coming out. It's like a gazelle coming out of a, a snail race or something. But when you're older, maybe acceleration when you have another 80 pounds on you is a little bit harder. You know, if he's 250 when he starts, he's like 310 in Los Angeles or something. Um, and that difference to me shows up because he's never strong as a lateral or horizontal mover. You asked about the three-point line. What happens to him defensively? He did not want to come out of the paint. He was someone who, going back to the 1957 championship game, the full game that we have in college, he's uncomfortable roaming out of the paint because his lateral movement is a weakness. So he wants to stay at home. Well, Cody, I mean, when you're 250, it's a heck of a lot easier to move like that than when you're 310. So acceleration, deceleration, and some of this horizontal movement on both sides of the ball, I think that's stuff he gave up as he got bigger later and later and later in his career. And I actually think it would have been harder for him to score as effectively as he did when he was younger. When he was younger, you get some of those early seasons and you're like, you're like some of those plays, you're like, damn, he's got, he's smooth on some of those plays. Between the fadeaway and a little spin or finger roll or drop step or things like that, he didn't always have the same quickness or burst on those when he was older. Uh, despite, you, you know, if you watch like 1972 highlights, you'll still see a spin move and a dunk. Part of that is because he's so big, right? It's like Shaq with the spin move, but just athletically slightly different as he went through his career. And that really stood out to me. And I think maybe early in the 70s, like in that 70, I think especially 70, maybe he was coming off an injury. I was less impressed with watching him in that season than even a couple of years later, like 72. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, he was coming off a huge injury, huge injury that I think it's I think it's weird that he was out there so early. So it was one of those things where like he probably hurts his reputation by playing through it instead of sitting because it was like four and a half months removed from like a, a tendon or ligament issue in his knee. Um, and he just doesn't even as you said before and after he just doesn't move very well. Yeah. And and I think it's that that game seven in 1970. It's really really not a good wilt game and you watch it and you're like how does this guy play like a few more seasons and he, he very clearly is better after that but what I want to talk about with the defense is you talk about maybe especially in the Lakers days loses some of the the lateral quickness loses some of the like straight line speed if he's still like this good defensively are we talking about like especially relative to the era is Wilt the best room protector in history well what about what about Bill Russell well, I think the thing with Bill Russell, and you even talk about it in the profile, is that he's such a more horizontal player. Like, this is a guy that can jump out and do things. And he's also, okay. what, he's he's five inches shorter than Wilt? No, no. Russell is probably six, nine and three quarters barefoot, mm -hmm. I think, is the is the report. I think Russell himself claimed six, nine and three quarters. And I think Wilt measured at seven and seven, seven foot and like three quarters of an inch. So what is that? About three inches? Yeah. Shorter and and I think Wilt's longer, but I think what you're asking is kind of like if he's there at the rim, how many guys are better? Um, not many. It's kind of like in the Rudy Gobert level when he's like at the rim and there and loaded up. It it's especially relative to era. 
Sometimes it's hilarious. You'll just be watching a game for the first, you get these 20 minute reels of games that you finally uncover and you'll be watching it and someone will drive near him and you'll be like, well, that's getting sent if you try to shoot. Um, yeah, he was, he was a prolific shot blocker. I have some estimates in their original profile, I think on Russell of their shot blocking totals and people have journalists back in the day, they didn't officially track blocks, but they unofficially went through and track blocks. And, you know, if we had the totals, we know they would be like six blocks a game, seven blocks a game, could be eight blocks a game. We don't know what it is, but it would be a lot of blocks per game. Let's put it that way. I think I remember this is really off the top of my head, but I thought there was one game where some like journalist was like offhand writing about it's like, I stopped counting after Wilt hit 20 blocks in this game. Yep. Yeah, there's there's a number of those. Um, it's hard to know how accurate they are. I think if you realize how many minutes they played and you can watch on tape, like we have games where you can just count that like Wilt or Russell have like 8, 10, 12 blocks in the game. I think there's probably games out there where it's like 16 blocks was the real number, 19 blocks or something. I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. And I think I, I really also want to linger on just like the weight change with him. Like... In those Lakers games, Ben, he is gargantuan. Like, this is a very large human being. And I feel like, th- like I'm imagining driving into that. And I, I I don't understand. When I see it relative to era, it's like, this guy doesn't even make sense watching him. Like, I don't know why anyone would try and drive in the paint against him. He's a bigger upper body guy than lower body guy. Um, I've talked about that with Shaq, having more lower body strength to displace people. But Wilt's upper, like, Wilt's feats of strength in the gym are quite famous. Arnold Schwarzenegger says he's seen him bench 600 pounds. Um, now, I want, what I want to know is when your arms are that long, what is the lockout? Is that, I, don't think there's, I don't think he's getting three lights in the weightlifting competition for that. Anyway, we're getting into other sports. We're getting sidetracked. We've got to pull ourselves back in. Um, Wilt, I think, is an MVP-level player in 1960, 61, 62. 63 is this like the first time we see one of these down years and these questionable years. Uh, it's hard to get a lot of footage from 63. My inference is that the defensive effort is probably a little weaker than the previous years. But as I said, 1964, I think, has a great argument for his peak seasons and one of the greatest peaks ever. 1965 is another one of these down years. But, you know, by the end of the year in Philadelphia, that's that's the game seven against uh, the Celtics where Havlicek stole the ball. You know, that that one goes down to the wire. 1966, I think we're back at a strong MVP. And then 67 and 68, his last two MVP years. Those are two more all-time seasons from my perspective. So what is that? Like a million? That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot of MVP, MVP seasons and three all-time level seasons for me. And that is enough to take Wilt Chamberlain into the top 10 do we have anything I didn't I didn't plan on talking about him for like an hour do we have anything else we want to hit before we kind of take what we've been talking about and and switch to some of the more modern picks I do actually because we talked about his peak I'm actually less interested in this peak there's one season it's one season Ben that I'm actually a little bit more interested in and his you know according to your profile I think you view his final season 1973 being pretty good, like a really good season, maybe like an MVP level season, but then like he's done and all the evidence I can find, like when I'm looking it up, I think in his book, he says something like in the end, I simply didn't have a strong desire to play again like that. That's it. Yep. He didn't end because of an injury or anything like that. So if we're not counting injuries or anything else like Magic Johnson being done, if we're not counting injuries, is this the 
best final season of an NBA player in history? Wow, the best final season? Are we not counting uh, uh, Michael Jordan's 1998 season? Oh, Ben. Oh, Ben. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> no, we're absolutely not counting that. Okay, then Magic Johnson in... Well, no, wait, not, Magic Johnson came though. back. We're, well, I'm not counting injury. I'm not counting... Okay, fine. I guess if I have to count Jordan's last couple seasons. Yeah, Magic Johnson came back, so he doesn't even count for this. Okay, so you're just saying you're just saying for all other people who've ended their career, was there a final season as good as Wilt Chamberlain's 1973? Yeah, especially if it's not connected to an injury. I think the only season... Boy, you're going to love this, Cody. I think the only season I would take over it would be Bill Russell's final season. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, Bill. So are they both MVP-level players in their last season? I think they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can talk about uh, Russell's range and things like that later. You know, again, there's a certain amount of uncertainty with these guys because of the 60s, but especially with Wilton Russell, you get enough film and you start watching enough film and you start to, each time you do it and you get more information, you feel more comfortable. And we have a decent amount of statistical information on these guys because they were such titans from their era. And uh, yeah, I I think if Wilt's 1973 is on the border between like the best all NBA and, and weak MVP, I think it's probably weak MVP. Uh, I think Russell is also a slightly better week MVP season. I just think Russell's defense at 68 and 69 is so good. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, Will Chamberlain's rookie season, we talked about. Tim Duncan's rookie season, I think was a little bit weaker. I'd probably take Wilt's rookie season. And even though Duncan is like 22 in his first year, I feel like Duncan grows a good amount in his first few years. In the year 2000, he misses the playoffs. So for this exercise, he voids most of his value for that season. Uh, again, we've talked about more fluid ways to do it, uh, but it's just hard to figure out where to draw the line. By 2001, he comes back. He's added a little bit more. And I think 2002, 2003, especially with passing, in the first five years of his career, just developing passing, being more comfortable playing out of the post, all this stuff, that's where you get peak Tim Duncan and you get, you know, just like Wilt, you get two more of these all-time level seasons stacked next to 1998 MVP season, 1999 MVP level season, 2001 MVP level season, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. I think in 2008, he's a weak MVP. So that's like the first 10 or 11 years of your career. You're basically a perennial MVP level player. One thing I will say about Duncan, Cody, I feel like this time through, I really got a better appreciation in Greatest Peaks of how in 2004, and even in the uh, Western Conference Finals MVP series we did this summer, 2005, years like this, where his health wasn't what it was in 2003 and 2002. You know, you had like things with his uh, ankle or like foot stuff and he just didn't move as well defensively. And so it's weird because I think he kind of has this huge spike in 2002 and 2003. And then you see the following years, I think he's a little bit weaker on offense and a little bit weaker on defense. So it's still like an MVP level player, but it's not like he took that peak in 2002 and 2003 and wrote it like Michael Jordan for like the next five or six seasons. It's more like 
He didn't get back. I actually think his 2007 season is probably the third best season of his career because it took him a few years to get back to that health. And you see that with his mobility. And this is even before the uh, the rebirth of Duncan in the 2010s when he slims down a little bit and has just some great late years with the beautiful game Spurs and Kawhi Leonard and things like that. I think that's the interesting thing about Duncan is he has these first 10, 11 seasons of MVP, whatever he is, he's still a pretty valuable part of those Spurs seasons. And I think that that value probably holds until his last season where he's just a lot more limited and not playing as much. But I think something that's interesting as we compare Wilt and Duncan is that we're talking about rim protection and Wilt's rim protection is just like, look at this dude touching 13 feet catching balls like this guy's ridiculous. Duncan didn't have that vertical athleticism, but he was... I guess he was just, like, so good at, like, ball targeting, like, blocking it on the way up or meeting people at the apex before it left, and he just had these unbelievably long arms. I don't think Duncan gets enough credit for being just unbelievably long and and really strong. Again, you talk about Wilt being kind of an upper body strong guy. Duncan also had, like, the the strong base where it was tough to to post him up there, so um, I find that uh that interesting but something i do have a question about duncan because i've always wondered about his defense because i remember doing some defensive studies you know really rough estimates really truncated stuff where you're looking at some of these uh with or without you defensive studies and i feel like kind of in that 2003 ish 0204 range when he misses some time when he lo- when he's not playing it doesn't seem like the spurs drop off that much on defense compared to some of the other defensive titans so what do you think's going on there? Is Duncan maybe benefiting a little bit from playing next to just a defensive genius and like a strong defensive roster? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I feel like every time I do one of these series, I, I have to look at like Hakeem and then Garnett and then Duncan all in this same kind of like chronological order. I, I like to go back and do things chronologically. And every time I get to Duncan, I'm kind of the the least impressed of the three. And then you look at some of these raw things and you're like, oh, my God, the Spurs have all these legendary defenses and, you know, Duncan's numbers are plenty good. And I know I'm looking at a great defender, but what's happening is my is my mind tricking me and I'm just not valuing his paint protection because that is his strength. This just like swarming, very long arms. I don't even need to jump to block the shot. I just stick my arm out and get the ball. And to your point, if he played in any other era other than the Shaq era, we would talk about how giant this man is. He was like seven feet, 260 pounds. There aren't a lot of great historical centers who are walking around at seven foot plus, 270 plus pounds. So this is a huge, huge guy. And I think he used that strength as a man defender, as a rebounder, as a post player. And, you know, the paint was kind of his area. He was a great paint protector was he the greatest of all time I don't think he's maxed out at 100 on every index but you know he's he's pretty high in a lot of areas when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping Kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time Kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply I go back to this episode I did on how good can your defense be without an elite rim protector. 
And I think it's surprising how good you can be. So you can't, there really isn't a defense in history that I can think of that's on the elite all-time level without a good rim protector. But you can be really good without one. And so just in the way that I think Patrick Ewing took the Knicks from like a really good defense to a great defense, I think Duncan is on a really good defense. And I think the most important part of having a really successful defense in basketball, especially in the regular season, is what's your personnel in terms of who the coach puts on the floor? Does he put defensive-minded people on the floor or offensive-first people on the floor? Two, what's your coaching philosophy and system? How much do you emphasize defense? Um, The Spurs, some of the stuff they were doing defensively in terms of their rotations, once illegal defense was kicked out of the game in 2002, last time I went through, I was like, oh, from an X's and O's standpoint, I'm seeing more than I've ever seen. This is really cool stuff. Their rotations and the way they play the weak side and things like that, it's a little bit ahead of its time. Uh, And this is why, you know, Greg Popovich is one of the great basketball coaches of all time and why his assistants and lieutenants have done a great job and have, you know, great defensive minds, great defensive coordinators that he's been with. So you've got the coach, you've got the personnel. And I think the, th- the third ingredient is that great paint protector. And the, the great paint protector is the thing for the Spurs to me that takes you from like a very good defense to an all-time level defense. So I give Duncan a ton of credit as one of the best defenders ever. But I've seen so many conversations saying like, if it's between Duncan and Garnett, Garnett, you know, Minnesota's defenses are like average. And Duncan's defenses are great. Why wouldn't that be a huge tiebreaker that says clearly Duncan is the one you'd rather have defensively? And Cody, frankly, I used to think that way when it was happening. During the 2000s, I was like, I think I think you're better off with Duncan's paint presence. Just look at how dominant San Antonio is defensively as a team. I don't know if I quite feel that way anymore. And the, just the easiest thought experiment in your head to realize it is that if you switch Duncan and Garnett, do, do you not think the Spurs defense with David Robinson and Kevin Garnett and Bruce Bowen and Greg Popovich would, wouldn't be at the same level, if not slightly higher or something? It's not like you'd make that change and you're like, well, you have a slightly different type of defender in there. The defense is going to fall apart. I think that's an interesting thought experiment because I almost think playing next to, you know, Duncan playing the, the four famously or being a four, whatever else we could talk about. He, he didn't play he, the four that much. That's the thing. He played the five so much. He did, but there was usually another big man out there. And so if you're sharing the court with other big men, right, I think that's more conducive to what the way that Kevin Garnett played defense, whereas like Duncan, Duncan was better. Like he could step out. He was mobile, but he wanted to be in the paint protecting, whereas KG was just like everywhere right just literally literally everywhere defending all kinds of space and especially if he had another backline defender like if you had david robinson with him like good lord like i I can't imagine what he'd be able to do on the perimeter it's it's i mean it's not lost on me that in 2004 when the the timberwolves were like okay we're gonna go more defense we're gonna have Irvin Johnson come in and he's going to play center and we're going to have Trenton Hassel come in and he's going to be your three. Like all of a sudden now you're talking about the best defense in the league or one of the three best defenses in the league or whatever it is. Just a huge shift um, defensively for that team. And again, we've talked about it ad nauseum. You look at like the shifts that happen when Duncan goes to the bench and when Garnett goes to the bench. They're actually pretty similar in a lot of the numbers. So I think you are talking about 
two similar defenders, two of the great defenders of all time. But to your point, they are a little different. Like when we were talking about the 2005 Western Finals, um, they kind of attacked Duncan. The Suns kind of attacked Duncan in pick and roll. They're like, we're just going to spam you in pick and roll every time and, and good luck. I have, I'm not saying you know it's never happened, but I have a hard time remembering Kevin Garnett getting attacked and run over in pick and roll. Kevin Garnett may be the best pick and roll defender in NBA history, both playing the big man position in the two-man game and then as the weak side defender, the third guy coming over to help uh, once you get rid of illegal defense in, as the third defender in the pick and roll. So all of that is to say, I, I, I think at their peak... They're pretty close. I almost side a little bit now defensively with Garnett and what he was able to do in Boston a couple of years later, a little bit past his athletic, like he's at the end of his athletic prime and focusing a little bit more on defense because he doesn't have to carry as much offense. And that season was just a tour de force. The 2008, 2008, 2009, along with 2003, 2004, Kevin Garnett, I think are seasons that at this point that I'm like a little bit higher on than Duncan's peak. Yeah, and we're, I'm thinking again to our conference finals conversations, and then in the 2004 Western Conference Finals, like the the system <laughs> that the Timberwolves were running for Kevin Garnett was like someone else is going to guard Shaq because when the balls entered, KG, we need you to teleport from this side of the the court over here to defend him, and then when he kicks it over to Carl Malone here to take a jump shot, we actually need you to teleport back there, and like it it, it kind of worked, and there was never a t- like Duncan's great, but there was never a time where Popovich is like Duncan, I need you in multiple places at once. Like, like that just didn't happen. But when we're actually talking about the uh, these two, you know, I, I agree with you that KG is is, you know, probably the better defensive player. But I think it's the offenses that are really interesting here. I think talking about them offensively, because, again, we have two extremely different styles of offense. So what do you think about these two, especially at their peak, comparing their offenses? Uh, yeah, I think they're totally different styles, as you said. Um, I think those peak years for Duncan that I talked about, you get better and more consistent low post scoring with his size and his passing is good. Like Garnett, I think is just a better passer in general in kind of all areas, but the post passing combined with the offense combined with the willing to willingness to make extra passes in situations. uh, I think you, you, well, certainly for floor raising, if you need a team that you can run a ton of stuff through and be resilient against heavy pressure defenses in the postseason, I think I lean Duncan. Um, Garnett, what's interesting about Garnett is what do you do with 2005 to 2007? What do you do with those years? Because he comes off this all-time level kind of 2003-2004 run and he just doesn't quite look the same. There's a lot of issues with the team. Uh, the wheels are starting to come off the Latrell Sprewell, Sam Cassell era. Uh, can you call it an era? Can you call something that's one year an era? In this case, but, yes. You know, his, his post scoring gets polished up and he clearly has a tremendous amount of juice in the tank defensively. And he flashes that for a number of those years now. Is there a leg injury that he has in 2007? You know, they kind of shut him down at the end of the year and things like that. What would that have meant in a different situation? And then the big question we've talked about before, how do you handle the change going from one situation that is like, you know, basketball Siberia to 
uh, this situation that's completely invigorating in Boston where they come in and uh, he realizes they have a chance to win and it's just back to full throttle, slamming your head against the basket stanchion and foaming at the mouth before every preseason game, let alone every playoff game. Like, how, how do you handle that? I don't have a great way of handling that. Um, so I do view Kevin Garnett's 2008 as his best season since 2004. And then I think 2009 is great, but he gets injured. So that there goes that season. And then 2010, you're talking about coming back from the injury and he's probably pretty underrated. You know, he's probably like an all-star level player as that team gets to game seven of the finals, but you can see in the playoffs how hard it is for him to coming back off that injury, just to move his movement is not as good as it would be in 2011, probably not as good as it would be in 2012. So the longevity on these dudes with their height, we alluded it to it with Duncan, this rebirth when he loses weight, 2012, 2013. Cody, I have Duncan as an all-star player out to 2015. <laughs> I think that's the edge of his, you know, what you do in 2015, I don't know. But I, you know, is, is he sub-all-star? Is he on the fringe? It's right there. And then I'm saying, like, I think he's an all-NBA guy for the first, like, 15 years of... 16 years, 16 years of his 16 or 17 years of his career. Let's, let's put it. It's, it's like most of his career. I think you're talking about an all NBA level player with Garnett. Now Garnett came in out of high school as a teenager. Let's remember that if Garnett came in at 22, like Duncan, I said, Duncan was an MVP level player. I said, Wilt coming in at 22 was an MVP level player. Bird coming in at 23 was an MVP level player. I think Garnett in his 22-year-old season in 1999 was an MVP-level player. The difference was he's got his his baby year when he comes out of high school in 1996, where he's just struggling to you know crack a starting lineup. 1997, boom, he ascends to an all-star, and he continues to grow, and by 1999, goes from all-star to through all-NBA up to a, what we would call like a weak MVP-level season. And then he's an MVP-level player for the next decade. And he comes off that post-injury. And then, and then oh, oh, Garnett's, post, Garnett's post-injury seasons are only, you know, all-NBA, all-NBA. 2013, I think, was his last all-star quality season. Much like Duncan, you know, these guys can't play high minutes. So is it on the fringe of not being an all-star? I don't know. But you, you can go back and do it. When you're that good defensively and you're not taking anything off the table really offensively, and you're that good as a passer and you understand the game that well, hard to find like 25 or 30 players you'd rather have on your team for the 2013 season for Garnett and for the uh, 2015 season for Duncan. Wilt has fewer of those seasons, but longevity was harder to come by when you came into the league in 1960. Even coming into the league in the late 90s, like Duncan and Garnett, that is insane longevity. (laughs) That is absolutely crazy longevity to have like 15 or 16 all-star level years and they both have it. And the result is all of these guys to me are kind of in a similar group in the ninth, eighth and seventh best careers of all time. So based on what you said, it sounds like Duncan just racked up this ridiculous amount of all NBA level seasons. It seems like he he ended up getting more or getting more of those than Kevin Garnett. What about like MVP 
did either of them hit an all-time level peak? So where are they when we when we break it down in those kinds of bands? Did either of them have all-time level peaks? How many seasons of that did they have? Who had more MVP level peaks? Just go ahead and break those down, because that's what I'm really interested about here in KG and Duncan. Yeah, well, of course, we're talking about three guys that all hit all-time level peaks. I mean, Duncan and Garnett were in the Greatest Peak series for a reason. So I think Duncan has those two years in 2002, 2003 at that level. Uh, I think Garnett has 2003 and 2004 at that level. And then I give Garnett uh, six more MVP seasons. Duncan, we're basically talking about five, sorry, six more strong MVP seasons, eight eight MVP seasons over 10 MVP seasons overall. What am I saying? 10 MVP seasons overall for Garnett. When you count lower level MVP seasons, Duncan also has 10 MVP level seasons. And then I have three more all NBA seasons for Duncan and four all-star seasons. So what is that? 17? Yeah, that's 17 all-star seasons. I have for Tim Duncan, Cody. That's pretty good. I have uh, Garnett with, Six more all-star seasons, so 16 all-star seasons for Garnett. What a chump. What, what, what blows me away, of course, I'm, I am much higher on Garnett than most of these publications. Most publications seem these days to have Garnett in the low 20s. Um, the USA Today, one we talked about, 75 list last year, had him at 26. Slam Magazine in 2018 had him at 26. In theory, you might even be lower now because more modern players have passed him. What always amazes me about this, Cody, is that uh, Garnett made, in real life, 15 all-star teams, 12 all-defensive teams, nine all-NBA teams. He has an MVP, a defensive player of the year, four rebounding crowns. Um, he's like got 25,000 career points and... 14,000 rebounds and 5,000 assists. I'm not sure how many other players have ever done that. So you have like all these total, this huge totality of work in addition to just saying, hey, remember when he kept, you know, he won MVP during the Duncan, Shaq, Kobe heyday. Remember that? Remember when he finished in second second in MVP and almost beat Duncan in MVP? It's just, it's very strange to me other than this kind of like, well, he didn't, he, he didn't win enough or he didn't have enough playoff moments that he's so historically low compared to some of the other guys that you would see in the 20s because the totality of his career, peak, prime, accolades, raw stats, advanced stats, plus minus stats, et cetera, on film, et cetera, et cetera, uh, seems to me to be a pretty, pretty big slam dunk as one of the best players of all time. And you know how much we love ranges around here, right? Oh, absolutely. You know we love ranges. I have Garnett at his high point. I think you could get him up to five or six. Oh, top five. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, he, and all of these guys, for the rest of the way, there is definitely an element when I watch them of like, I can see how if things had gone differently, they would have a narrative or reputation as a GOAT candidate. I think that's something that's really important to think about when we want to think about any like all-time list. What would it take for a few things to go differently? A few teammates, a few injuries, a few bounces of the ball 
not for this player to change how they were as a basketball player, but for the rest of the basketball sphere to go on Reddit, go on Twitter, go on talk shows and just be like, what are you talking about? How can you not have Tim Duncan as one of the two greatest players ever because of X, Y, and Z? He has eight championships. In real life, Tim Duncan has five championships, but maybe maybe something, a few things different could have happened and he has eight. On the flip side, maybe he doesn't go to San Antonio and he has one or zero. To me, that doesn't change how good the player is. So you have someone like Duncan here with five titles, six finals, and just a million 50-win seasons on this incredible franchise, this incredible run for two decades, right next to someone like Garnett, who was, as we said, in basketball, Siberia. So the high end for Garnett to me is about five or six. The five and six guys are basically a coin flip. Um, And then the low end, I would say, is probably around 13, the back of that last group we talked about. It's hard for me. You, You have so many good seasons You have to really, really downgrade your assessment of someone like Garnett here to get him back into that next group, to get him to like 14, 15, 16. And I'm not saying that's impossible. It's just kind of pushes the boundary of where I'm comfortable because I do think very highly of him as a player. So high is five or six, low is 13. Wilt Chamberlain, we talked about some of the uncertainties of the 60s, the shape of their career and whatnot. I think you could have Wilt I think you could have him as high, maybe as competing for number four. Four. Okay. Maybe competing for number four. And the low end, I would call, let's call about 12, maybe 13. 12 or 13. 12 or 13 are pretty close. But if I really had to, you know, push comes to shove, I'm more comfortable keeping it at 12. If you said, well, what about the era uncertainty? I'd say, sure, he can drop behind the number 13 guy as well. And then Tim Duncan... I am the most comfortable with the totality of that career that we talked about. I would also have him pushing the number four. I don't know if I could get any of these guys above number four. Uh, We'll talk about that next episode, but maybe pushing number four as well. And I think the low end for Tim Duncan probably only takes him around, uh, I want to say like 10 I have a hard to you. We talked about Magic Johnson and Larry Bird fighting for that 10 spot. Obviously, you know, you you throw in another all-star level season somewhere in there. You could say, okay, now he's number 12 or whatever. But really, I think if I'm trying to be tighter on the range, I think Duncan doesn't go much lower than 10 or 11, something like that. So, Cody, I, I go uh, number nine on this list, Kevin Garnett. That is a change from 2017. Wilt Chamberlain at number eight and Tim Duncan at number seven. Okay, KG, Wilt, Duncan. And I think the thing, again, the takeaway here is you said that, you know, Duncan and Wilt might have a case for number four. They can go down to 10, 12, KG, 13. They're in the same range, right? So if you have them in the same range, it it ultimately is like, it's a wash at that point. But something interesting, I'm not going to use names here, Ben. I'm, I'm not a man that's going to stand up here on a podcast and use names. But a couple of these publications have somebody like Scotty Pippen ranked above Kevin Garnett. And if, if I just, I just don't need more proof that like you're looking at rings at this point. Like that's, that's like the, the highest reason you're doing it. And I, I don't, I don't see how you can mount any kind of an argument that Scottie Pippen had a better career than KG. It's, that's what I mean by it gets strange, right? Because when you directly connect the players, it seems like Garnett is just a taller, better style of Pippen. You know, maybe maybe Pippen literally can be more of a ball handler and a better passer or something like that. But 
Defensively, it's like Pippen on steroids. And offensively, he has a much better track record as certainly a number one. You could debate whether he has a better track record as a number two or number one A or whatever. But um, then he has he crushes him in longevity as well. So he has better accolades. He has better stats. He has better advanced stats. Uh, he has better longevity, has better peak, has better prime. It, it, it gets weird. Um, there's no doubt about it. So Garnett, we said he's in the 20s in a lot of these publications. Wilt is anywhere from four to eight. And then this is somewhat surprising. Duncan is pretty consistently at the back of the top 10. He's like eight or nine for most people. The reason it's surprising to me is I just would expect a little bit more variability, but I, I, I feel like Duncan had a career narratively that is the opposite of polarizing. So it just leaves people like feeling very, like there's a safetyness to it this is where he's got to be. He's that good, but there's no extra gear. There's no like, well, maybe maybe Duncan's number three, maybe Duncan's number four, and he's got too much on it that people could be like, no, 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 Garnett, you have Garnett 26th. Duncan should also be 23rd. The two dominant quote-unquote power forwards of the 2000s. Yeah, it's kind of like the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson connection. Like, people just can't separate those two. Well, I have a hard time separating those two, but I think apparently a lot of people have a hard time bringing them together, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where does that leave us on this list? That leaves that leaves us with six players left. Let's do this, Cody. Uh, Hakeem Olajuwon and Shaquille O'Neal are number five and six, and I could really go either way on them. We'll do a quick Patreon extra talking about anything new from the last few years with those guys. We'll call it a day for now, and we will come back. We will talk about the four best careers, the Mount Rushmore of NBA careers. We'll see who I think has the most valuable on-court career, who ends up at number one. Is there a change from 2017? I know many of you have asked about a particular current player who's still playing in the league. Has he done enough to move up to the top of this list? We will discuss that next time. For now, if you want to support this, this show, check out patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. That's where we will have the post show on Shaq and Akeem with some extras there. We also have uh, additional articles and content just published uh, a new sort of way to look at playoff team strength using a different kind of um, perspective on offensive and defensive efficiencies in the playoffs back to 1984. That's available at patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Hope you are enjoying this series as we wind down and uh, that you've had a, a great summer listening to it, getting ready for the new year to kick off. We will switch back uh, in the next few weeks to topical content and otherwise, wherever you're listening out there, of course, I hope you're having a great day.